Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. This episode, like, as I'm sort of documenting, like, making notes about what I was going to talk about, I just called it, like, the angst mix, because I'm just going to talk from the cuff about things, and the reason that now, more so than in the past, I'm, like, really skittish about doing an episode where I just riff and, like, talk about random shit is because I'm currently in the process of trying to lure guests onto the show, authors and journalists, and I'm always afraid that they're gonna come onto the fucking RSS feed and they're gonna look at the most recent episode and it's gonna be like this one, (laughs) where there's no preparation at all, and I just... They're going to be like, oh, this dude's a fucking idiot. I'm not going to go on this show. (laughs) So having mentioned that at the front of the episode, having told you that in the event this is the first one you're listening to, don't. Now I feel a little more open. But the reason I called this the angst mix and the reason it's sort of slapped together and riffy and, uh, you know, it basically defeats its own purpose. I I had There was a death in my family uh, two weeks ago, and so I had to drive up to Vero Beach for the memorial service, and that just occupied a lot of my mind, even when I wasn't, you know, in the days prior to getting there, while I was there, and then in the days after, it very much occupied my mind, and then when it came time to work on a podcast, when I was kind of, like, able to do that, I had to pick up shifts at the restaurant. I didn't want two weeks to go by without there being a proper episode, but now it's like, by the time I get this up on the, on the fucking feed, it's gonna be Friday, and it will have been two weeks since the last episode. But the thing I was going to riff about, and I don't know, I've been doing this for so long, I don't know why it's never occurred to me to riff about it. I guess it's because I never gave the phenomenon a name, the practice, not the phenomenon. It's not something that happens from nature. It's like fucking me. (laughs) The thing, like, I I never really gave it a name until I started talking about it with my girlfriend, but every Sunday is kind of like sacred. And uh, I think when I started working at the restaurant, I picked up a few Sundays, but for the most part, I keep them open. And the reason I like a Sunday is because if you go to a bar at like 7 p.m. on a Sunday, it's going to be dead quiet. And also, like, I spent, I don't know, there's just something about the casual atmosphere in the world. I feel better to use that as my day of study. I didn't give it that name until I started describing it to my girlfriend, but basically on Sunday I read for like five or six hours, and I start with usually the Miami Herald, and then I read the New York Times, and then I go on to the New Yorker, and then... I try, like if I'm in some kind of series, I'll try to read a couple of comic books, and then uh, if I can write, I'll write. It's just, it's kind of like a recharge of my social batteries, intellectual batteries, emotional batteries. I feel like if I spend an entire Sunday reading a very diverse fucking palette of shit, and obviously like the New York Times and the New Yorker are both kind of left-leaning, heady news outlets, but they are very different. But if I read that, I read some comic books, I read a lot of local news, maybe make a dent in a novel or a biography that I happen to be reading. After consuming all that stuff, when I go into into the subsequent week, like from that Monday to the following Saturday, I've got my conversations mapped. Like if anyone comes up to me and they try to make small talk, I got fucking... And yeah, like, it, I, I I did get to do my day of reading, I think. Um, I'm working, I'm writing a book at the moment, so that, that commands a lot of time. But I was able to go through The New Yorker, at least, or a few, you know, The Talk of the Town, and a couple of the long-form pieces. 
And the opening thing in Talk of the Town was about the Olympics, and I thought the New York Times had like a great headline a few weeks ago. When the Olympics ended, there was this op-ed piece, and the title was, um, the Olympics, the 2020 Olympics ended today the same way that they began. Strangely. <laughs> and like, it starts off, this, this piece in the New Yorker, I think it was by Anthony Lane, it starts off just saying like, who wanted this? <laughs> who wanted the Olympics to be going on now? And as I was reading that introduction, I was like, well, the fucking athletes. And then in the second paragraph, he was like, well, the fucking athletes. And so I guess he kind of preempted my argument there. It was very nice to hear him talk about it. And um, it, it touched on some things that I'd been thinking about, too, with respect to the Olympics, because I don't really seek it out. I'm not interested in the Olympics at all, really don't follow any of it. But because I work at a bar and because it's got, you know, like any bar, it's got the TVs are tend to be turned to, to sports rather than to news. And so I, when I would work a 13-hour shift on a Saturday for, I don't know, the three or four weeks that the Olympics were on, I would, it would just be fucking nonstop Olympic Games. Like, a lot of it was really captivating. Very few of these events did I even know existed as a sport. Like, I watched women's powerlifting on a rainy Saturday morning at the bar, and, you know, I had no customers, so I was able to focus, and it was really interesting. And then when the competition ended, it, like, cut really hard to, um, you know, a game that was in that was in progress and it was like three men with metal triangles galloping on on sticks it was like that obviously not that exactly but it was shit that was similar to that like they're wielding instruments i don't understand and then like numbers appear on the screen and i don't know what these numbers mean <laughs> like who's winning which was even the case with fencing i mean obviously i, I, I kind of began to deduce that probably like if you stab your opponent in a place that's like where a vital organ would be that's probably more points than you know n grazing their shoulder or something i think maybe i'm wrong about that but anyways even when in watching sports where i wasn't particularly interested or had or i had no idea what was going on the thing that almost invariably proved calculating or captivating is that like in the moments before action was taken, like when the athlete assumes their position but the buzzer hasn't gone off or they just haven't launched into their you know, their action, you, there's always a close-up of their face. And I think it's fascinating to see that close-up of a person's face and to know that they know that this is the, this is like the most pivotal moment of their life so far and probably will be for like the whole run of it. And also with some of these events like gymnastics or pole vaulting, where your body is really only fit to be doing it at, a, at an Olympian level for like I don't know, six years or eight years, when these people know that they're only going to be competing in two or three, maybe three Olympic Games in their entire life, and even despite their talents, they're lucky to be involved in just one, because God knows, you know, the whims of misfortune, they could get injured and be totally disqualified for the rest of their lives. But to know that, I don't know, like, you see someone just at a very, very pivotal moment. And strangely, what it reminded me of is the Derek Chauvin trial, which also happened to be unfolding with, like, on a day when I was working at the bar, and thankfully the, the verdict was being read at a kind of gray hour between um, lunch and dinner, so I was able to focus on the screen. Although, you know what? Like, I said, reflects, I just noticed, I caught myself saying, like, oh, it was that gray area between lunch and dinner. But I actually don't know that it was. I just know that the restaurant was empty. And I remember when I worked at Cheesecake Factory in. 2016 to 2017, no, on, on the day of Trump's inauguration, like, nobody came in 
to the restaurant. And I thought it was super weird. And then someone pointed out to me, someone who had been in the biz for like 25 years, she was like, yeah, whenever a president is being inaugurated, everyone eats lunch at their desk and they fucking watch the inauguration. So maybe that's that's what was happening at the restaurant. While on the day of Chauvin's verdict being read, everyone was kind of like glued to their TV at home or in the office. But I remember when the verdict was being read, there was an ext- I don't remember what channel I was watching it on, but there was an extreme close-up of Chauvin's face and of his eyes darting back and forth, back and forth between the judge and the jury, the judge and the jury, the judge and the jury. And it was just, it was one of these captivating images because I feel like I've spent my whole life hearing people talk about like, oh, I could read the look in his eyes. And I've all, you see it particularly in fiction when they say like, oh, his his mouth was saying one thing, his eyes were saying another. And I don't really know what that means. I think what it, it's referring to mostly is the eyebrows. Because that's where expression is conveyed, is in the contortion and the nodding and whatever of a brow. But anyways, I've never really thought much about it. Kind of like when a person says, oh, like they're telling you a story and they go, I thought to myself, what, you know, what am I going to do now? Like, of course you thought to yourself. You are not a telepath. You cannot think to other people. You can just tell me, oh, I thought. Whatever. And so maybe when people say, oh, I could see from the look in his eyes that he was... Maybe what they're really referring to is the eyebrow. Because your eyeball is a pretty static fucking thing, but for the fact that it's, like, rolling around a lot... I mean, it doesn't contort to communicate emotion. Anyways, so I'm watching this thing with Chauvin, and his eyes are so fucking expressive. And it, it seemed like one of the few instances in my life where I was seeing not... I think he just wore this unmoving, traumatized horrified gaze like his face wasn't moving at all but it was the eyes the way that they were darting back and forth and like not to suggest i have any kind of sympathy for derek chauvin but like it's just it was powerful to see the look on his face when he knew that his life was essentially over both in the sense that like he's going to be incarcerated for the rest of his life or until he's extremely elderly or the fact that he's either going to have to die a horrible death in prison or hang himself. But otherwise, yeah, the Olympics were cool. And also Anthony Lane um, mentions that one of the things that was most redeeming about the Olympics, despite their weirdness, is, as he put it, the kids. <laughs> um, that it just seeing, it, it, I forget how he worded it, but just something like at the, it's for a year and a half kids have basically not been allowed to be kids like they've been you know forced into quarantine and couldn't see their friends and shit like that and to see the triumph of these 16 year old athletes and uh, you know that it was just that was a very warm part of it too this happened during in watching movies for thousand movie project i think there have been two every year the olympics committee or whatever you call it appoints a filmmaker to sort of render the entire event into like a three or four hour documentary and in Thousand Movie Project, I have to watch one from like 1970, and I think the 1938 Berlin Olympics, which were shot by Lenny Riefenstahl, where Hitler is there in the stands. And on, on, in in both instances, I watch them thinking, "Good fucking lord, this is going to be so fucking boring watching a four-hour documentary of the Olympics." But each one was absolutely riveting, and they're made with total sensitivity to pacing, kind almost. You can't call it a prose poem. It's like a film poem just as a tribute to humans. And what's interesting is like when you look at the 1938 documentary about that those Olympic Games, and then you watch the one from, I think it was 1970, maybe it was 71, but you see that how, because training methods have changed in, in the intervening decades, the physiques 
of the competitors have all changed. And it, when you watch the games from the from 1938, any event that requires a great deal of strength, the athletes look out of shape. You would not think that they they were as you know Herculean as they actually are because. They just ate a lot of food, I guess, in order to cultivate that strength. And so there was a padding of fat over their robust muscle. Whereas in the 70s, like everyone is really defined and lean and it's, it's even more the case. So I'm at work and like the lunch rush is just dying down and there was this couple at the bar and the dude had like luminous red hair and extremely fair skin and um, he his girlfriend was wearing this ornate dress like and they sat holding hands but it was that very gentle dainty kind of maidenly way of holding hands where like his hand was open and she only had her four fingers in his palm. Um, but they had their elbows on the bar, and so they were holding hands like that, and every time I would come close and glimpse, like, would glean a little bit of their conversation, they, he, it was him kind of sermonizing to her, like, and we can do anything we put our minds to. Like, again and again, every time I, I popped over, he was saying some kind of, like, meaningless, optimistic uh, things that are empirically not true. Like, you can't do anything you want. Like, you, just because you're a couple doesn't mean, like, you can become a giraffe. You can't do everything you want to do. I think that's silly. But also, like, I just thought there was some weird kind of culty vibe between them and then I, I was thinking like why am I talking shit about these people to my even to myself if they're you know they're just being happy and not bothering anyone and obviously very optimistic and then there was another piece in the talk of the town about these like artisanal urns which are also vases or I guess maybe you call them planters they're made of wood or weird metals and you put in your loved ones cremains a person or a pet but um, it, it also, obviously, I have I have uh, death on the mind and uh, funeral stuff and not really afterlife questions, which have never really plagued me. Every single morning on my way to the coffee shop, I pass um, a liquor store and there is a homeless guy who sleeps on the sidewalk, and, like just flat on the pavement. And throughout the day, I see him walking around and people give him food and he'll sit on a bench and he'll be eating something out of like a styrofoam clamshell container. Every morning, he's just sleeping flat on his face on the pavement and i'm always wondering like the day's gonna come where i walk by and he's blue and uh hasn't happened yet but i like i get that little pinch of anxiety every time i'm walking by him because as i'm walking into the coffee shop i'm always thinking of like the shit that i gotta do the shit that i gotta write read and i gotta get it done by a certain time and like if i walk by that dude and he's dead like i'm gonna call the cops like my morning my day is shot and then that feels terrible too because I'm thinking like, oh, what if this homeless man dies? And then my immediate reflex is like, oh, there goes my day. 
that's another thing I've been trying to sort of make peace with is like trying to be a compassionate person and then forgive yourself for like the fucking almost sociopathically self-interested thoughts that crossed my mind like that one like like, like yeah I, I'm, I'm very very intent on getting things done every morning and it's not like if i walk past this homeless guy who is face down asleep every single morning at that hour and now suddenly i walk by him and he's dead i'm not i'm not i have to, to confront like i'm not going to be riven with grief i'm sure it's going to i'm sure it's going to affect me really fucking hard to just walk by a dead guy not just a dead guy but a dead guy who i've been seeing around my apartment for three years but i don't think i'm gonna clutch my chest and weep um i was thinking about this at the funeral too and like signifying grief is gets very tricky if you think about it because like uh the death in my family was of my aunt and in saying to her kids my cousins my first cousins um I'm sorry for your loss, extending my condolences to them, it almost feels as though if if I am in a position to extend condolences, it means that I am not grieving myself, and then it suggests, I don't know, it's almost like saying to the person like, hey, I'm sorry that you are so upset by this thing, which is not upsetting me, but then if I bring that, if I mention that, if I'm like, oh, I too am grieving this event, that it sounds... It sounds like I'm now taking it from them. And I know this sounds like really fucked up thinking because it suggests it suggests an ownership of the occasion's grief. But it does cross my mind, and it, I think it must cross everyone's because certainly at the service I, and beforehand, people were making remarks about like, oh, how is so-and-so doing? I imagine this is hitting that person har- very hard and this person very hard. Not suggesting a hierarchy of trauma or, or of grief, simply pointing out that there are some people who are closer to this person than someone else. And then you wonder, like, is it disrespectful to approach and and make small talk about something that's going on in the world? Or, hey, how's your job? I don't know. Anyway, the, the re- <laughs> this is a weird digression. The reason I was going on that digression is because I'm reading this thing about the decorative urns, and I was thinking about, you know, what, I, I do think I'm a little weirdly, foolishly romantic about the idea of my body and, and being in a coffin when I die and a place where people can come and pay respects, goddammit. But, you know, an urn would probably be fine. I think I am coming around to um, the idea of being cremated. The phrase just popped into my mind. Um, I'm warming to the idea of being cremated, but now's not the time for a pun. It reminds me of this episode. Stephen Fry hosted um, a miniseries for the BBC where he just traveled around America, went to every state. Um, I remember he came to Miami and he was just like, this is a repugnant plastic place. But he was mostly on like Collins Avenue, which is all touristy. But in that show, there, there's um, there's an episode where he goes to a farm somewhere. And I think the farm is owned by the FBI or something. And they do these investigations in um, decomposition, forensic investigations where when you die, for instance, you donate your body to this institution and they will wrap your corpse in a rug and put it in the the trunk of a Chevy and they will track the the decay of, of your body so that the data that they collect can help them with subsequent investigations. And Stephen Fry starts thinking aloud, saying like, this is actually the kind of institution to which I'd be happy to donate my body. But that then reminded me of this memoir that I was reading a long time ago, just paging through it at Borders, and Borders still existed, so obviously this is like 15 years ago. I might not be remembering it correctly, but it was a memoir of someone's time in um, whatever you call the school for um, cosmetic surgery. So the, the the person writing the book talks about how when they are practicing facelifts, they pra- there, there comes a, a, 
a point down the line in their schooling where they're practicing facelifts on actual cadavers. And the person you could tell from their tone, from the tone in the prose, they're like, can you believe it? Did When these people signed up to give their body to science, you think they ever figured that they would someday, someday be sitting decapitated in a bedpan and, and I would be giving them, you know, a tuck and lift or whatever they called it? And I was thinking like, for a while after reading that, I was like, wow, yeah, that's so fucked up. They must be so pissed. But like, what did they... What do you think they expected? Like, no one who donates their body to science thinks that, you know, their corpse is gonna hang around and just be really valuable for a long time, and it's gonna be, you know, the stomping ground on which, or the fertile soil from which the cure for cancer is pulled. No, it's gonna be like, you know, they're gonna cut off your dick, two med students are gonna take either end of it, and they're gonna pull until it snaps, and then that, the, what, the data that they collect from that is going to help I don't someone repair their eardrum in the year 2045. I don't I don't know. All this stuff is so scattershot and disconnected. You have no idea what kind how useful your body will or will not be and nor I think at that point are you particularly concerned. Not just in the sense that like oh you're dead so what do you care, but I think like if you were of a mind to begin with that you were going to donate your body to science, it's probably because you're like, you know what? <laughs> Let them do what they need to do because I don't need this anymore. It probably just doesn't matter all that much to you. I can imagine that like if as a ghost I'm I'm rising up from my body in an operating room and I look down I'm gonna be like oh that's the spot where so and so kissed my cheek that's where I banged that's the knee that I banged and it's your your body is to you a kind of text and every scar has a story behind it you, you see the stretch marks from puberty or pregnancy and you you just your life the things that happened in your life and by extension the people who took part in your life are literally inscribed on the text. On, on the parchment of that is your flesh that sounds very biblical <laughs> i'm driving home now and uh i got as we, we were just discussing that I'm, I'm kind of like reflexively negative about things and i was having a conversation with my manager a little while ago where he was like hey have you ever given any thought to maybe getting into management as opposed to just bartending I, but I really don't like I really don't and he kind of got it it's like being a restaurant manager seems like bondage they work I mean the guys the managers at my restaurant it's fucking intense manual labor and also like beyond that they have to have the patience to deal with customers I notice working at the bar like I get weird as soon as I'm put in a position of authority I become extremely petty and like protective of that authority and like whatever I'm trying to uphold like if, if I'm in charge of you know maintaining a certain rule and that rule gets broken I lose my shit even if the rule doesn't mean anything like earlier today this woman comes in from her office it's kind of like late in her lunch break she only has, has time for a beer and I tell her that we have this special which where like the draft beers certain draft beers are two for one and she wants to drink a Stella and the Stella is two for one so she gets her beer and she drinks it and then she checks her watch and she says oh I have to be back at my office but I know I know it's two for one are you gonna be bartender are you gonna be here tomorrow and I was like you cannot come back here tomorrow to get your free Stella no you have to drink it today and but the thing is First of all, no, I'm not going to be there tomorrow. Second of all, the two-for-one deal applies tomorrow as well. So why was I so protective? And then I got even more frustrated because rather than telling her no, you like, you have to have your Stella fucking... Like, 
you gotta have the two at once. I fucking said, oh no, you can't, you gotta do it in the same day. And she was like, oh, okay, I'll be back after work. And she fucking came back six hours later and she was like, hey, can I get that free Stella? And I don't know why I was so angry when I was pouring it. And I noticed that my boss, the well, the general manager, working at a restaurant, you see all kinds of like fucking slippery, smarmy people trying to wheedle fucking free breadsticks out of you or something like they'll they'll complain and they'll complain they'll slash their their calf and and hold their blood up to you and say oh your garlic did this and just because they want something shaved off of their check and that shit enrages me like i told you once about when i was working at cheesecake factory and and i was at, i was the host and this these two women came up and they were older ladies and they wanted to sit inside the restaurant but we only had seating outside in the atrium so I took them to a booth in the atrium because otherwise they would have had to wait a really long time they were moaning and groaning and rolling their eyes and 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 just being really difficult they sit down and I go to get the menus I come back and one of them points at the plant beside her and she goes oh I can't I'm allergic to this kind of plant I can't I can't sit here and I was like ma'am that plant is plastic she hadn't, no, like, she hadn't even touched it. But, like, later on, she ended up taking, like, getting in touch with the manager, and she was really just pissed in general. And the manager asked me what had gone down, and I told him what I said, and he was like, there's just nothing to have been gained from making that remark, from pointing out to her that the plant was fake. If she wanted to pretend to be allergic, if she wanted that desperately to sit inside that she was going to pretend to be allergic to a plastic plant, fucking just wait. <laughs> like, just tell her to wait. And, and a table will open up inside. But when people do that kind of shit at the pizza place where I currently work, my manager is so fucking cavalier and it like slides right off his back. Um, I had a table recently where uh, someone asked for a Michelob Ultra. I brought her the Michelob Ultra. She drank it and then she's like, can I have another Michelob Ultra? So I bring her another Michelob Ultra. She watches me cross the restaurant from the bar with her beer. I'm standing beside her, she's looking at me, I pop the tab on the beer, and then she jerks in her seat and she goes, actually, wait, no, I was going to cancel that. Obviously, she just wanted the fucking beer for free. She wanted me to be like, oh, well, it's open now, <laughs> I guess I'll take it off your check, and I gave it to her. So I like, I, that's exactly, of course, what I ended up doing, and then I just sort of harumphed my way across the restaurant to where my boss was and I was like dude guess what the fuck just happened when you do inventory we're gonna be missing a Michelob Ultra and here's why and he thought it was really funny and I he, fucking I another thing that happened at Cheesecake Factory is um I one time I wasn't the server in this case but a server took a huge plat like a $20 massive platter of chicken nachos to a table set it down walked away a little while later, turns out someone didn't get their nachos. That table that received the huge order of chicken nachos, they ate the whole thing. The head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Not giving a fuck. And then, of course, they do what they always do. They do what someone has done to me, which is they eat, so you set something down thinking it was, thinking it was theirs. They know it's not theirs. They eat the whole thing and then they go, oh, I thought it was for free. You thought it was for free? You came for dinner at a pizza restaurant and I gave you a, a, you got a gigantic pizza covered in meat and vegetables and you thought like this is, this is the breadsticks. I get so worked up and it is a sign obviously of like great, just smallness of character 
I think, that my pride is so caught up in the the dining machinations of strangers that I take it so personally that they should choose not, I don't know, to try to exploit, they're not even exploiting me, they're exploiting the restaurant. And why do I give a fuck when I, like, I've seen what the markup is on that, on, on these pizzas. It's insane. It's thousands of percent. But I'm also kind of a, pa- like, just, you know, sometimes, like, if I fuck up a pizza, like, if I ring it, these people, let's say, wanted pepperoni and olives, and I put in pepperoni and mushroom, and so the whole pizza has to be made again. Like, the managers really twist my nipples about it, and they're like, Alex, you're wasting so much materials. And I legitimately start to feel bad. I feel horribly guilty. When at the same, but then I'm like, I have to have some, I have to like slap my my own nuts with, with Chomskyisms and and point out to myself, like, they pay me $5 an hour. Why do I care if they lost a pizza that they were marking up 2,000%? But I do. And then I get so bent out of shape whenever... Yeah, I don't know, man. But basically, that's why I can't be... I don't want to be a manager. Anyways, that's it. This is this is my riff episode. I'm done. Fuck it. I gotta go keep writing. Um, cause I am nearing the end of this book that I'm working on, and I'm pretty pleased with it. But I'm always pleased with them. Oh, like when I'm right near the end, and I think it's kind of a necessary delusion in order to make it to the end of a huge writing project. You kind of have to be under the willfully naive impression that what you're doing is like inherently valuable and people are going to get something from it and in my case that it's going to throw open the doors of some kind of profession but yeah when the when the book is done maybe i'll share some of it here um i'll, I'll read it or maybe just on patreon if you'd like to help support the show uh you can always uh become a patron and for five dollars a month you have access to an extra few episodes so anyways that's it for me sorry if you were expecting an episode last week and it didn't come through thanks for listening and talk to you next time Thank you.